the general vibes are bad, I think. <laughs> the general vibes are that we're making an attempt. These yeah. are the general vibes. Of course, of course. Yeah. All right. Um, I had planned, Dan, on starting this by being like, have you seen all of the new Warhammer models? But as soon as we started talking, we, we pretty just much started just talking about it. Yeah. That. We've covered it all. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, New Lion. It's cool, folks. Yep. You're in it here yep. first. <laughs> oh, dear. Still like um, Space Marines. I was, I was just saying to Jack, maybe I'm going to reconsider doing 40K, and I was trying to work out what I'd been thinking about is which army would I do? And I, I, like, can I resist the allure of Space Marines? But I don't think I can. Like, if Follow- I ever go back to it follow through on your ideas from the Sylvia Frederici, the thing that we took from Caliban in the West <laughs> of making a heretical war band. I think you need to do yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I saw some, uh, some like novitiates on eBay, like a, a, a box that were like half built for like 10 bucks. And I put in a bid and then immediately someone was like, no, I'll pay more than that. So I was just like, all right, never mind. But that would have been cool. Fucking that sister Novitiates heretical army. That would have been very cool. That's why I don't bid on things, bid for things on eBay. I don't think I could take the defeat, you know. Just, I just give up. I just go, yeah. okay, whatever. Okay. Not for me. <laughs> yeah. Not for me. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Maybe maybe I would just like enjoy the relief of not having to have the thing. Like, yeah. Oh, phew. Well, that okay. is actually what I did. Because as soon as I bid on it, I'm like, I don't have 15 bucks to spend on this shit. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> hmm. Um. Okay. And much more important news, Dan, though. It was recently a holiday here in the Northern Hemisphere. And that holiday, I've officially decided on a day for it, Dan. It was Potato Day, which I've officially decided (laughs) is the day after the equinox. When we officially get into spring, as soon as I can do it, I'm planting my first Oh, this is the plant the potato. This isn't the day when you go to the allotments and then all of the sort of old boys at the allotment are debating whether it (laughs) is or isn't too soon to plant the potatoes. Listen, I get in way before them. Okay. (laughs) So okay, so you've yeah. decided decided there aren't going to be late frosts, and uh, if there are, yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, the potato so, will be fine. Just plain yeah. will die back a bit, but yeah. I'm getting mine in early. So have um, you done? Have you done that deed? I've done half of my first earlies, and then I'm kind of stressing out because I was going to basically. I've pl- God damn it! I've, I I made like a spreadsheet for the allotment this year, being like first phase, this is what I'm doing. Second phase, this is what I'm doing. It's going to be all organized. And then I've just realized immediately that I don't have anywhere near enough beds. And so I've been hurriedly trying to like dig beds in corners of the allotment that like used to be walking paths. And like, so I'm getting there. I was going to plant the rest of them today, but we're recording this podcast. And then I was going to plant the rest of them tomorrow, but there's going to be a big storm. So you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you probably day. should have just dug the entire allotment straight away and the <laughs> Yeah. Apologies to the People's Commissar of No-Till, no Charles dig. Darden, but I have been digging. I'm very kind to the worms, though. I always pick them up and I plop them in my compost and they go, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, that's what I got going on, yeah, as well as 40 fucking broad bean plants. And I'm like, why did I do this? I need this room for potatoes. But, you know, okay. it is what it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought the holiday you were going to reference was like... Um, the beginning of British summertime day, which is oh, what um, daylight savings? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. You know that was called British summertime day. Oh, well, uh, uh, yeah. I think officially. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we have daylight now, which I appreciate. We do have daylight. Yeah, but it, it can't be daylight saving. We can't talk about this. This is we can't. But <laughs> my my general feeling is it can't be daylight savings if it gives us more sunlight, right? Presumably, the, win- the the activity of going into a winter time ought to be the daylight savings period. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. 
Is it so? Is it daylight? Sa- I'm a fucking idiot. I have no idea. Is it daylight savings time now? I don't know. No. So okay. in, in in the winter we're on Greenwich Mean Time, which is the official Greenwich Mean Time, and then in the summer we're Greenwich Mean Time plus one, which is British summer time. So oh, I see. So okay. I don't. I don't know. What is the what is the socialist line on daylight savings time? Are we pro daylight savings time or are we anti? Because I know there are a lot of people who are like anti daylight savings time. Is that any idea why? I don't know. I think probably because it's a great frustration to people who live in countries where the where it doesn't have such a stark impact. But I feel okay. like for us, our degree of latitude, is that right? Um, <laughs> it does have quite a big impact, right? Yeah. Yeah, I look so, forward to it. I think it's good. Yeah, okay. That's the line. But I mean, <laughs> back home, I will say, all of the people that I know... California, it probably doesn't make much sense. Exactly. All of the people I knew who were like anti-daylight savings time are coastal liberal elitists, Dan. So, oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we def- definitely don't want to be that. No, we do not. We yeah. do. Okay, sure. Pro daylight savings time. Let us know if we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> One thing people need to know about this podcast: our opinions are malleable, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't even have to make any effort at changing them. We'll just we'll just do it ourselves. You know, it's not. Like, you don't have to message us. You don't have to phone in. You don't have to email angrily. Just ask yeah, us next week, and we'll that. probably have changed our mind. <laughs> Maybe just yeah. send just send us the appropriate left wing reading on um, daylight savings time. Yeah, does EP Thompson talk about that? When he gets probably not. That would be a weird <laughs> thing for him to talk about. But yeah. if there's a weekly worker article on it, we'll read it and then we'll agree <laughs> with that. It's fine. Mike McNair takes on daylight savings time in modern Britain. Yeah, there's an article that would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, Dan, uh, we're back. We, as our listeners should know, because we had an interview last time, we've read a book, a full book, and right. um, this one, this one stressed me out because Dan and I were gonna read this book for last episode, and then it very quickly became apparent that that wasn't gonna happen, and we were like, we're doing an interview, we wanted to have this one done for a while, uh, so we'll just we'll we'll do it. This will give us time to read this book, um, and then I think both you and I have spent yesterday today pretty much reading this book which is part for the course i think yeah 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 and it gives us the best chance of accurately representing it yeah it's sort of fresh in my mind <laughs> if if it isn't sort of like a, a sort of jumbled soup of ideas or it's created a jumbled soup of ideas out of my brain but um i try and com- sort of compile those mushed components back together into having something sensible to say yeah well yeah exactly we'll have yeah. takes Actually, yeah. that's not true. We never have takes. No. So we'll just do our best at regurgitating. So in our in one of our streams or in one of our episodes, I think it was, I made the mistake of saying that this book, okay, we're reading Eric Foner's A Short History of Reconstruction. There it is. There's the buried lead. I made the mistake of saying that Eric Foner was friend of the show, Philip Foner's son. What he actually is, is his nephew. But the reason I got confused is because he has a twin brother, not Eric Foner, Philip Foner. He has a twin brother and it's his twin brother's son. So I don't know why that would have confused okay. me. They have different names, but <laughs> okay. Well, you misled me, Jack, and I feel aggrieved. <laughs> yeah, why did we read this goddamn? I read, yeah, I read this whole book thinking it was Philip Fonerson. <laughs> now I don't care anymore. All of the worth and value of it has disappeared. Yeah, I will say I was looking this guy up on um, Wikipedia, as you do, um, and he seems like a really, really good historian. I think he wrote a book about Lincoln that a lot of people have said is like excellent. Um, 
And he, well, he actually, he wrote a much longer book about reconstruction, presumably called <laughs> not a short history of reconstruction. <laughs> we could have, we wanted to talk about reconstruction for a while. Um, we bandied around a little bit, maybe talking about um, black reconstruction in America, W.B. Du Bois, Du Bois. Um, then we realized that that book's about almost 800 pages. And we realized that would take us a very long time to get through. So even though that's probably the authoritative text on it, um, we picked this one. And I really enjoyed it. I especially like the first bits where he's just kind of like hits you in the face of like everything you think about Reconstruction. It's not true. And here's why. And you kind of have to kill your heroes, you know, your Lincolns and your whatnots and your radical Republicans to really understand what actually happened. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. It was a fresh take, I suppose, but also a um, eminently readable one, which is why, why we read it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was, uh, I was reading through it, and I was realizing how there could be how this is an abridged, how this could be an abridged version of a much longer book. Because although it's um, comprehensive, you do feel like it's sort of flying through things at the same time, which just speaks to the fact that there's so much to cover um, in this relatively short period of American history. Um, a great deal happened and I kept trying to keep up with the dates and I was like oh this is only six months after this last thing and it's yeah comprehensively different circumstances are going on yeah um but yeah as you say it's um yeah it does a good job of leaning sort of steering clear of celebrating or vilifying any particular one person and does a really good job of giving you an overview of the history and it's a great synthesis of history with a huge amount of I suppose political economy underlying it. That's when I sort of got excited every time there was this glimpse of, okay, what is the um, uh, political economy underlying this? What fit phase of America's transition into capitalism does this sort of represent? And um, how does this fit into the sort of broader history of America? And it's, um, it's a monumental period, which no one would have denied, right? The American Revolution, everybody knows is a serious period of American history, but um this book does an excellent job of, I guess, portraying and doing justice to that. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, as you say, like even in the American school system, you're taught that re you spend like a week or two on reconstruction in 11th grade U.S. history. Um, and it is taught as this monumental period, but the way that it's taught is it's like, you know, the typical, like, oh, and then Lincoln died and he had all of the perfect plans. And if only Lincoln hadn't died, then maybe things would have turned out differently. And they do give you the like, you know, in 1877 or whatever, when there was the just horribly corrupt election that marked more or less the official end of Reconstruction. Um, you do get the kind of in the American school system, the like, and this was a disaster. And, you know, the black population uh, took a huge step back, um, after, you know, from where it was in the immediate aftermath of the civil war where there were all of these new horizons and all these different things. Um, but it doesn't really get into why, and it doesn't, as you say, have any of that political economy. Um, I think one thing that I've taken away from this though, is that reconstruction is an incredibly complicated topic. And although the one constant remains, you know, this battle against labor and the subjugation of labor that needed to continue in the eyes of the planner aristocracy and the, even the Northern capitalist, right. Um, against the black population, ex-slaves um, of America, it's also incredibly complicated. And, you know, it didn't just differ from one year to one year or from a couple months to a couple months, as you're saying, um, but it also differed like state to state. And it also differed region in those states to region. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll try and get into a little bit of that about why it was also complicated. But as you say, in these like 12 years from the end of the Civil War until 1877, um, 
an insane amount happen. And it's a really excellent lesson in political economy if you actually try and understand why these things happen the way that they did. It teaches you a lot of lessons, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What also shocked me was just how repetitive it all was. It was like so many things repeat over and over again. Um, the, the same policies are returned to in different guises and then the same groups have the same kind of reaction and then um, the Washington government has a similar reaction and it, everything seems to go through these undulating phases through the whole thing. Yeah, a, a very repetitive period, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I was thinking a lot about the Comnenal and about his you know three quick steps you can do to do historical materialism. And I'll read one paragraph quickly from the Reconstruction book that really made me think about it that kind of gets to this central idea of where the core um, dynamic is between exploiter and exploited, right? So he says, like their counterparts in other societies, the American planner aristocracy believed that the South's prosperity and their own survival as a class depended, as one Georgia newspaper put it, on one single condition, the ability of the planter to command labor. And the conflict between former masters attempting to recreate a disciplined labor force and blacks seeking to infuse meaning into their freedom by carving out autonomy in every aspect of their lives profoundly affected the course of Reconstruction. So I think maybe that's a good place to start because Comnenal kind of says one of the main things you need to do is find this core dynamic that is, you know, quote unquote, like driving history, right? Like where is the main point of surplus extraction? And in these Southern economies, and this was different than in the North, which is another thing that makes this complicated, it was this dynamic of um, obviously slavery, right? But then at the end of the war, you had these two uh, forces who wanted to go in completely opposite directions, right? Like you had the slaves who were freed in this kind of monumental uh, uh, moment of opening of social horizons where you went from literally being, you know, a slave to now, wow, almost anything is possible. We, you know, land reform, we can get land, we can be our own people, we can do this, we can, you know, he spends a long time talking about the different mutual aid groups and the churches and the political groups that were started by these slaves, um, or ex-slaves, I should say. And then also you had this ex-planter aristocracy, and we'll get into why they didn't just disappear <laughs> here in a moment. But um, you had this ex-planter class who wanted to continue the production of cotton, rice, sugar, all of these different things. And they needed to maintain control and command over a disciplined labor force. And that is the central dynamic. Um, we'll get into obviously kind of different uh, elements that get into the story, you know, Republicans, um, from the North and um, as well as even the industrial proletariat burgeoning in the North. But that's kind of the core thing, at least to me. I don't, yeah, there's quite a bit more to it, but that is, I would say the core dynamic. I mean, that yeah, that's definitely true. That's what kept ringing true to me throughout this. Um, and when this whole sort of story ends, we end up in a place very similar to almost where it starts, except for the emancipation of the slaves is a success. Um, the the effort to um, buy sort of like the survivors, the remnants of the Southern planter class. And in some ways, a lot of people, a lot of uh, Northern investors who come in as well. Because um, what What's striking initially, so sort of the first thing that I wanted to add to what you just said was um, the idea of the kind of general naivety of the sort of like Northern Republicans or the sort of like um, Northern authorities in Washington and, um, one of the things I was trying to pass throughout all of this was, um, what was their intention? What was almost what was the purpose of the Civil War? Maybe it's sort of like diminishing um, a reading of it's a diminished reading of history just to look for one single cause and one single purpose. Um, 
but if it was the desire by um or an underlying aspect of it was the desire from um the north to abolish slavery and implement um a sort of free labor system um what they envisaged as being the free labor system was really underlined by an incredible naivety on their part, partly because of what you say, whereby um, it totally overlooked um, what the, the the freed slaves were going to want, which was not to continue to work on the land for the same um, masters that had now become employers, but rather to gain access to their own land and grow subsistence crops and be independent farmers rather than to once again subjugate themselves to basically the same labor conditions under a slightly different guise um and it kind of for me in some ways it kind of justified the use of the terminology like wage slavery like right like at this point in time for these people there wasn't a huge amount of difference between these two systems um and they desired for something different and um the rest of American society was going to conspire to prevent them from having that, um, which is a sort of tragic story of all of this. Um, yeah, this is, yeah, this is not a very happy story. No. And I think you're you're absolutely right to point that out, that this, I would say that this is the slaves and ex-slaves were far and away the most radical class in American society at the time. We'll get into kind of like the strikes that outlined the end of Reconstruction in the North towards the end of, I think, this yeah. discussion. But I think it's important to take a step back, maybe, and maybe we talk a little bit about the Emancipation Proclamation, because this is like the ultimate, thank you, Abraham Lincoln. He was the enlightened <laughs> person in the White House. And this is like the ultimate great man theory of history yeah. shit, right? You know, like this scrawny ass dude from Kentucky or wherever the fuck he's from. He was just, you know, this enlightened, totally not white supremacist guy. And he totally did this for like nice reasons. But I mean, even like even more progressive liberal interpretations of this period will tell you that he did it so that he could win the civil war. Lincoln freed the slaves and did the emancipation proclamation. And then, you know, Congress did the um, 13th amendment to officially free the slaves um, out of kind of like self-interest. But Foner here puts forward a much more compelling argument. One that seems much more clear to me, which is that the slaves forced him to, he was just dragged into the, he was basically just like dragged into the sunlight of realizing, oh, we need to free the slaves because slavery is ending whether I want it to or not, because the slaves are just, you know, the war has started. So many of them are just refusing to fucking be slaves anymore. And it was such a fascinating, really like gave me quite a bit of hope and, you know, kind of, yeah, I don't know, really made me feel good to kind of see that like emancipation was bought about by the people who were enslaved, not by anybody from above. Right. Because he makes the point that, like, well, what happened on the plantations? A lot of the, like, white male uh, southern population went off to go fight and die in the war. And this left the plantations themselves relatively unsupervised and also just, like, you know, at a point where the slaves were kind of, like, there had been a number of rebellions before where they were, like, this is really our chance. So a lot of them would either take over the plantations or just fuck off and just go to the north and just be like, we're not going to do this anymore. So when we get this interpretation of history of like Lincoln freed the slaves, thank you, Lincoln. It's like the slaves freed themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And what, what was most shocking about particularly that period during the Civil War, I think he calls it like um, wartime reconstruction, right? The sort of early phases. Um, I think he says, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he says that the initial emancipation proclamation applied to the southern states, but didn't apply to slaves living 
in the sort of border regions that were occupied by the north, right? So it wasn't even a comprehensive emancipation. It was just uh, one directed at uh, the south. Sort of, yeah. Even in even in, in even in its first instantiation, it was very clearly a sort of tactical move, um, not an an ideological one, I suppose. I guess the other thing to highlight about Lincoln is, or in this book, all sort of like the the generally. Um, not Masayonic exactly, but like the sort of lost alternate history version where Lincoln survives is that Lincoln is the great support, supposedly like the great supporter of the enfranchisement of freed slaves. And with his death becomes, um, that becomes a much more contested political battle, I suppose. But once again, I think that interpretation, as you say, is one which is attaching far too much significance to one great person, particularly as he'd only sort of gradually moved toward that through... um, political pragmatism and not uh, again some sort of great ideological drive yeah and like every speech that he cites it's always lincoln being like i would be maybe in favor of something <laughs> like this and it's just like oh my god this asshole because he's trying to balance right like the support of the democrats in the border states who stayed loyal to the union right andrew johnson types with um uh, the radical Republicans, right? The radical Republicans. These were like the people who were like, maybe no slavery actually. And maybe we should like actually punish these uh, uh, Southerners. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe let's get back into that idea you were talking about f- the whole free labor ideology, because this really underscores, as you say, the like um, complete naivety of the Republicans. And, you know, during presidential reconstruction, as well as during congressional reconstruction, right? Like this idea that they could just open everything up to the free market or whatever. And the slaves would, I don't know, they kind of thought that they were doing something good to the slaves by doing that, because they just assume typical liberal ideology, they assumed everybody was on a similar level and a power dynamic wise, and also everybody was on a similar economic level, and there was no real such thing as class. So it's like, oh, if we just open these people up, the hardest working among the freed slaves will be able to lift themselves up by the bootstraps. But it's like, first of all, the the exploitation owner class was never, ever going to allow that to happen. And also like, this is just not the way anything works, right? Like he gives the example of um, one of the field orders that Sherman issued on his march to the South, right? Um, through the South, where he basically just like, you know, <laughs> destroyed whole swaths of where he marched and eventually made it to the ocean. Something that kind of like began to herald the end of the Civil War. Um, one of the field orders he issued was um, basically a type of land reform where he was going, where he did actually give the freed slaves in his wake something like 40 acres. It was the 40 acres and a mule thing, right? It was like, give them this land that we've taken from the, um, the plantation owners and the aristocracy, give it to the slaves, let them work it, let them make it good because this is what they want. And this is what would be good for the South. This would allow us to get back to cotton production and sugar production, but it would do it in a way where everybody's basically happy. Everybody other than the ex-plantation owners, uh, ex-plantation owner class, because inevitably as reconstruction ground on and on, this land was taken away from the slaves and given back to, as I think one freed slave says, the exact people that kept us in change, chains, you know? So again, this idea of the free labor ideology, it just, uh, of course it was never going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the other, the other, well, there's a few aspects of the free idea, labor ideology that sort of you are sort of you have to compile as you read this book and you find different elements of it. Um, 
one of them is what they the, the there's a naivety as we've said on the on a sort of total lack of understanding as to what the slaves are actually going to want to do um and as you sort of hint at there's also a, a general naivety around what is possible and i think there's also a naivety around actually how capitalism works and how it's going to play out um there is this idea it's almost one of the one of the other hallmarks of this whole period this book and this whole period of history it's the constant changing uh, class relations and the various factions and um, formations within the classes but also the actual evolution of new classes and the disappearance of old class relations and subsequently also the evolution of new um political forms of representation for those classes as well so you get these massive political transformations as you also got these massive class transformations and they're happening in the north with the bourgeoisie and the working class and obviously in the south as well um but early on there's this idea that one of the aspects of the free labor ideology is that um if we make these uh people free and they'll work for wages um there can be this new sort of like harmonious existence between the classes, which is sort of what you applied sort of like acknowledged before, right? It was like there wouldn't be any class conflict. There would be homo- harmonious existence. And the other really naive aspect of the free labor ideology that seemed to occupy the minds of lots of Northern radicals and Northern Republicans um, and Southern Republicans as well was this idea that um, working for a wage was a transitionary step toward building enough of a pot of money to gain your own land. And then it's through that channel that the uh, emancipated slaves would find their way to being, um, to owning land and being subsistence farmers or being capitalist farmers or what have you, uh, which was, I guess the ultimate desire was not for them to be tenant farmers, not for them to be subsistence, but to actually like do capitalist agriculture. Um, But of course the, the general trend of capitalism and the trend of this book is actually the opposite. It's like people engaging into the capitalist system and finding themselves prohibited from advancement and actually falling back into poverty and into indebtedness. And that do- that doesn't just apply to the freed black slaves. It also applies to um, sort of white subsistence farmers that existed at this period of time in sort of like lots of the northern parts of all of these states weren't really their economies weren't dominated by the plantation or by um sort of uh, a predominantly slave workforce but were um lots of small uh white subsistence farmers um and a similar process happened to them right like this engagement with the market and engagement with capitalism dragged all of the poor um, into greater and greater degrees of poverty without any possibility for them um, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps as this sort of free labor ideology implied that they ought to be able to do. Um, we we have our um, chosen short king of the podcast in Louis Blanc. I would <laughs> like to put forward, Dan, that we have our chosen short devil of the podcast, which is Andrew Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Because obviously after, um, to kind of go off of what you're saying, obviously after Lincoln was assassinated, we get Johnson becoming the president. And um, he was a bit of a slippery fish at first. Everyone was kind of like, well, he seems progressive for a Democrat. Well, you know, he's making all of these promises. What does that actually mean? 
And he's kind of had done a few things to kind of piss off some of the the like Southern um, plantation owner aristocracy. So people were like, what is it? Is he actually going to do? So the kind of radical Republicans at least held their breath a little bit. They're like, well, maybe he isn't just going to be a Democrat, like horrible guy. And of course, he wound up being a Democrat, horrible guy. But um, the thing that I thought was interesting was that he kind of pegged all of his hopes on raising the white yeomanry, as you're kind of saying, out of uh, poverty and being like, listen, this is the way that we supplant. Uh, the plantation owners is we try and pull up these like, you know, border state white yeoman people who kind of were maybe unionists somewhat in their sympathies, but also kind of just wanted to not just be sharecroppers anymore. Maybe if we can economically raise these people up, everything will be fine. Um, And that wound up just being a disaster and a horrible mistake because the policies that he uh, attempted to put forward to raise this yeomanry up, all it wound up doing was just bringing the plantation owner class right back. Um, and it's this interesting, like weird dynamic where you're still dealing with, I'm not going to say like feudal, um, class relations, but you're certainly dealing with something that you wouldn't necessarily call specifically just obviously capitalist. Um, we, there's not too much in this book about whether or not the American like slave owning South was capitalist. That discussion doesn't really come up, but it's an interesting approach where you're not just dealing with wage laborers and you get to this point where some of the black um, freed slaves, slaves kind of would kind of rather, they kind of fell into sharecropping because they didn't really want to just become wage slaves. Like the one thing that the ex-slaves really wanted was to create a world on their own that was outside of this horrible, like overbearing plantation system. And so sharecropping at least offered them a place where they could at least get a little bit of theirs and have something that's theirs and really, you know, it's just mine. I can just have that. Wow. And I can maybe eke out like a living in the world just for me. Whereas wage slavery basically just promised going right back to, you know, well, it's literally the same boss, but now, you know, you're technically not a slave, but then there were the black codes. So it's like, you kind of still work, you know? And it's, it's really interesting how um, the desire how there was a general misconception around what that meant for both parts parties, you know, like that desire for the freed slaves to um, the desire to determine their own course, I suppose, and to have their own part. And to, in some ways, the, the the case they were making quite rightly was that they put so much work into maintaining these plantations over so much time that what they were owed was um, some share of what they they work toward building. Um, but what's really interesting is the conflict between how the planters, the, how the planter class, how the the landowners feel about that relationship of the sharecropper and how the tenant farmers in that instance feel about it, because they wanted to be able to maintain um, a certain degree of control over their labor. They wanted to know how much they were going to work and what times of the day and this kind of thing. And the planters really want to be able to control that aspect of uh, the emancipated slaves' uh, labor. And similarly, the the slaves really wanted to think of their share of the crop that was being produced as theirs, not being something that belonged to um, the planter until it was given to them kind of thing. So there were quite a lot of contradictions in this relationship, which are representative of the planter class's desire to turn them into full-fledged waged laborers and the slaves' desire to resist that um, and maintain a greater degree of freedom than they existed or some measure of freedom, I guess. Yeah, and I think the thing that this book made me realize was that if 
the Republicans and specifically Lincoln ever really wanted to, you know, eradicate the old slave owning aristocracy, eradicate slavery and really move on to a different system. It would have come at the cost of waging a like massive class war. <laughs> and I don't think that was really in the Republicans interest. I don't think it was in the burgeoning industrial capitalist class's interest. One thing that we'll see as we kind of go on is that the carpetbaggers, you know, the Republicans and all of these different types, what it very quickly became clear that their aim wasn't, first of all, to set the ex-slaves on their feet. It was very quickly to find opportunities for investment. And this labor force offered an opportunity for that. And specifically, what a lot of them were looking to do was to open up the South to railroads. And this was like a very interesting thing he kept hinting at, this idea of a lot of the Republicans just, you know, working at the past of people like Jay Gould and people like that, railroad barons. He kept hinting at this throughout the book, and then he eventually kind of talks about it at length towards the end about why railroads were so important. And I guess it was important to basically create internal markets that the South could, you know, create manufacturing for. Um, obviously, just building the railroads offered a huge opportunity for investment. If you owned those railroads, that would be huge. And you really start to see this interesting dynamic once the Republicans finally get their way and they're able to build these railroads of um, seemingly at random, some towns being picked to become the you know big towns of the South that we know now, you know, Atlanta or Macon, towns like that actually become big because they have the railroads going through them. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, the reason I bring that up is, I guess, just because it shows what the Republicans' real aim was. Um, and again, none of this none of what we see as the real aims of reconstruction, what they needed to be of, um, you know, ending the reliance of the ex-slaves on this plantation owning class, et cetera, et cetera, could have ever happened without a like massive class war. And it just wasn't in the Republicans' interests. Um, even some of these so-called radical Republicans kind of balked at suffrage for the blacks freed slaves. So, you know, that just shows you, <laughs> I think everything that you need to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things to say to that one what you're hinting back to there is this question of whether pre-civil pre war, whether the pre-civil war South was, a, uh, was capitalist or not, and how this transition into capitalism or this intersection with capitalism or this deepening of the capitalist relations in the South um, happened. And I think in some ways, maybe I'd think about um, slavery economy of the plantation South as kind of like, kind of externality that sort of Jason Moore talks about a bit as something which is like, a sort of cheap which is not fully incorporated into the capitalist relations yet but something which is exploited by capitalism right because we know that the cotton growing south was incredibly integral to the capitalist center of cotton production in england but yeah this process of the introduction of railroads and it, it does lead to this um, greater connection of various different centers in the south to a broader market which i think is probably quite essential to that sort of like development of capitalism I spent a long time, I mean, I don't want to preempt too much of the end of this book. When I got to the end of it, I was just trying to work out how different the ending, we'll get there eventually, how different the ending point is to how, whether there were ways that could have gotten to that point that were sort of less bloody and less circuitous, because it felt like it was very similar to what you could have had 10 years before kind of thing. Um, and I was trying to work out what had happened. And one of the things was that sort of greater exposure to the market that the South was now in a position to have to bear which you're saying becomes from the introduction of railroads i guess yeah yeah it's, i think that's an excellent point because i've always kind of rolled my eyes when people are like 
they come down really hard on, no, the slave-owning South wasn't capitalist. Of course it wasn't. And it's like, well, it very clearly played a really integral role, as you're saying, in the development of the textile industry, which we always think of as like the ultimate first capitalist industry in the world, right? In England, um, in Britain, I should say. So I think that's a really good point that, that it was this kind of appropriation, this kind of externality of a labor system that was eventually uh, engulfed into actual like capitalist relations. But that wouldn't happen for a really, really long time. Well, after the end of reconstruction, quote unquote, in, in the late 1870s, um, I mean, sharecropping would be a thing even in the West for an incredibly long period of time. So I think that's really well said. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the South was left with quite a um, sluggish economy after this whole process finished without any sort of like uh, strong dynamism toward capitalist growth as we would recognize it. There is an interesting aside to make connected to that is in this book, one of the things that struck me, because I'd always always entered this perhaps with the idea that um, the North was capitalist and the South was something else or was sort of like, an adjunct but wasn't fully incorporated into american capitalism um but when he does talk about reconstruction in the south and this in the north rather in later stages of this book he also implies that there were considerable developments that happened to northern capitalism in the reconstruction phase in the north uh, which almost raised the question for me well was the north fully capitalist even in the outset of the civil war I mean, I don't know whether these are particularly vital questions. What was happening was there was an evolution toward capitalism as there was happening at so many places in the world at different stages and continues to happen. Um, and it's not like turning on a switch. It's a gradual process. And, and later on, we can talk about what it was that was happening in the North that was so fundamental because I think it's quite important to the story. But yeah, sidetrack there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a couple of beats we should hit on, I yeah. guess. We should hit on what wound up happening to Johnson. Um, yeah, he, like, I sorry, I, I kind of wanted to... Like, it's such a strange character and such a different trajectory through this. Because, like, I when you I, when you were talking about him earlier, I just wanted to sort of like bring up the one thing that I really remembered about him was like, because you know he, he had this attraction to the sort of like white yeomanry of the South and really wanted to champion them. Um, and he was, so, I think, basically like so many people in this that could potentially be, would seem to have like desires to liberate in some ways, the slaves and give them a certain measure of rights. He was also fundamentally racist, racist at his core. Um, and the most sort of most, one of the most telling, one of the most peculiar aspects of him that's uh, discussed in this book is the degree to which he thought that the sort of like slaves had such a history of oppression by the planters and that they were so meek and under their foot that they would ally with the planters. Um, if they were given any degree of political power. So one of his main motivations for like disenfranchising them of political power was to prevent some kind of allyship between the slaves and the former planter aristocracy in the South. But that, that sort of brings to mind one of the most interesting transitions. He only He's only president for th like three years or something. Um, and one of the most interesting, weirdest transitions that he experiences is going from somebody who is actually f fundamentally opposed to the planter aristocracy at the when he takes over the presidency to basically spending all of the presidency actually reinforcing their position not really um prosecuting that uh planter class who'd been so significant to the secessionist movement but rather desiring to um re-empower them reinstall them in place i suppose and i it sort of makes me want to challenge or not challenge exactly um 
query the degree to which they couldn't have gone after this class. As you say, it would have been a significant class war, I suppose. Um, but Fauna does kind of indicate that the South was so was cowed to by its loss in the Civil War that it really would have accepted a lot more being forced upon it by the North than the North was actually willing to do. And I do wonder whether they whether they could have removed or significantly changed the social relations of the South. Sort of feel like that could have been a possibility, right? They could have they could have followed through with the promise of breaking up the um the plantations and giving them as uh plots to the slaves and then they could have could have presumably installed capitalism in a different means or a more full-fledged version of capitalism through that method than they ended up doing which is um which actually brought them back to a very similar kind of economic model that they had at the end of the civil war um yeah that's kind of implying that their desire was to implement capitalism which i don't know whether it necessarily was yeah i mean i guess they didn't for a reason Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say that. I mean, I think that what this was all about, though, was dis- maintaining a disciplined labor force. And so maybe the Republicans just saw the planter class as the only people who could legitimately do that. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was just pure ineptitude. I mean, the Freedmen's Bureau was run so poorly and given so little money that the people who were running it were like, well, we're not going to be able to fucking do anything from like day one. But then also, like, maybe it would have just been incredibly politically unpopular for them to just out and out do land reform. Like land reform. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Very, very rarely in history, a non-controversial topic. And this would have been like one of the biggest land reform things in history, right? If they were to just completely give the land over to the slaves. And I mean, you know, as much as we like to say the radical Republicans were like this monolithic block, like they certainly weren't. And there were a lot of different factions within the radical Republicans. This is one of the reasons it all falls apart towards the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. But like, I'm tempted to say that it was preferable for the Republicans to maintain a disciplined labor force than to maybe risk having a like utopian, you know, socialist, potentially like, uh, you know, black state in the South. Yeah. Yeah, I think you are right. And I think it all actually comes back to what we identified before is the contradictory nature of this free labor ideology. Like both parties wanted to um, have a disciplined workforce that was primarily made of made up of the emancipated slaves continuing to work on the plantations or continuing to work um, in similar agricultural fields, growing export crops like cotton and sugar and rice and what have you. Um, and it was just that the North naive believed that you could introduce wage labor mechanisms and a, a market in labor and the emancipated slaves would accept that. And in some ways, actually... Um, the former planter class had a much more clear-headed um, vision of what was going to have to be done to um, institute, as you say, that disciplining of labour. And they were do- they were doing it very quickly, almost immediately after the Civil War ended. They were um, trying to put in place mechanisms to prevent the freed slaves from actually moving freely, from leaving the land. To they they were trying to make it illegal for. Um, anybody to offer another job to um, any of the freed slaves because they wanted to have them continue to be tied to one plot of land and one employer. They wanted to have them sign yearly contracts. They wanted to have them receive a yearly wage. Um, So they were sort of implementing all of these things that flew in the face of the North's idea of um, what was implied by free labor. And it was in some ways, it was 
the Norse reaction to that, which led to the ensuing kind of um, congressional or radical period of uh, reconstruction that basically stemmed from the Norse inability to accept that to achieve what everybody wanted to achieve, maybe the planters were right in their um, their efforts, I suppose. No, I think that they just, they existed. (laughs) Like they were the people, they were the only people who had the means at that moment to, you know, and it's just fucking bullshit about like Andrew Johnson being like, okay, you can have your land back if you swear an oath. (laughs) It's just Mm, like, oh my God. It's like these people just fought one of the bloodiest battles in history up until that point, or wars up until that point. And he's like, swear an oath. It's like, (laughs) oh yeah, that means something. Like, please. Um, So, so yeah, Johnson winds up getting impeached by, by, I should say, by the House and not by the Senate. And I would like to read you an incredibly funny bit from a Wikipedia page that I found. (laughs) Thaddeus Stevens, who's one of the like ultimate radical Republicans in this, and who I think comes across really well and as someone who really cares about enacting civil rights and equality, perhaps only because he dies relatively early on and isn't, you know, he doesn't have to deal with like the falling apart of the radical Republicans towards the end of Reconstruction. Um, He, (laughs) look up a photo of this guy, listeners, while, while I'm telling you about this, because this is incredible. Basically, he was one of the main people who wanted to get Johnson impeached. He kind of maneuvered Johnson into doing something where he was going to have to act in a way where he was going to like break the law um, but he was also dying as all of this was going on. And so this passes, the setup to this is that this passes the house, he gets impeached, but then the Senate says no. Right. And ostensibly it's like one vote that decided it, but Fonder makes the point that like, if it looked like it was going to come down to the wire any more than that, a bunch of other people would have voted to make it not happen. But this is what's going on. Thaddeus Stevens is basically dying on the Senate floor as this is, as this is happening. And he's a very corpse like looking individual in the best of times. So this is from Wikipedia. The New York Herald describes Stevens as having, quote, a face of corpse-like color, rigidly twitching lips, a strange and unearthly ap- as a strange and unearthly apparition, a recluse remonstrance from the tomb, the very embodiment of fanaticism, without a solitary leaven of justice or mercy, the avenging nemesis of his party, the sworn and implacable foe of the executive of the nation, which sounds pretty fucking cool, but then there's this next bit. But he was increasingly ill, and he took little part in the impeachment trial, at which the leading house manager was Massachusetts uh, Representative Benjamin Butler, During this time, Thaddeus Stevens nursed himself on the Senate floor with a mixture of raw eggs, terrapin, which I believe is just turtle, and port and brandy. (laughs) If I had to guess why he might have been dying on the floor (laughs) of Congress, might have had something to do with drinking brandy, turtles, fucking port and eggs. But, you know, I'm not a doctor, so, you know, don't take my advice on that. (laughs) This just, there are photos throughout this book. There are like little sections of photos. And you just look at these people and like, you know, as like the white congressman, you just go, this was a different time, man. <laughs> this was a different time. Very, very odd. Um, but on a serious note, one thing that I guess we should note before we move on is that um, in the lead up to the Civil War and during the Civil War, some of the main people in the North who were pushing for abolition um, were obviously freed slaves. You had your people like Frederick Douglass and the people, you know, freedmen or uh, people whose you know, family had been freed. They sort of like black Northerners. Then you also had feminists. And there was this really interesting alliance leading up to Reconstruction between feminists and abolitionists. Yeah, obviously, it would have Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, people like that. But um, I don't know. I think that's just worth pausing on because Thaddeus Stevens kind of comes out of this milieu, right? And it's just a very interesting mix of um, 
what would you say? I suppose like uh, people who were uh, maybe not in the best position in society getting together to really come forward for kind of common goals. And there's a really interesting move, mix of abolitionists and the suffragette movement, which is um, really fascinating and only touched on a little bit in this book, but really quite good. The Alliance winds up falling apart, but still quite interesting. Yeah, Fauna does a good, um, a good job of making um, a, ver- a very obvious point, I suppose, which is throughout all of this period of time, the possibility of enfranchising women is totally overlooked. And it's, as you say, it's for the very reason that uh, women's emancipation and women's receiving the right to vote in the US. It's the fact that that's constantly overlooked throughout this period of uh, the the liberation and the emancipation, temporarily, I suppose, of uh, freed slaves. It's the fact that that continues apace where uh, whilst there is no, nothing happens on women's emancipation that ultimately leads to the collapsing of that um, alliance. But... Um, it's an important thing that exists at this period of time that we're talking about now kind of thing. And um, as you say, it makes an important contribution to the history. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting also the way it kind of falls apart, but I suppose we should touch on, we've touched on the first of these, but we should also touch on the three kind of reconstruction amendments, which was 13th, 14th and 15th. The 13th was obviously abolition. It went on from the emancipation proclamation. The 14th was the right to citizenship. Uh, for everybody born in the u.s uh except dan can you think of the one group that was excluded from that for all of this uh yeah it was yeah i, I spent a long time sort of trying to rush i mean it's a similar thing like how do you rationalize what's going on in these people's heads when they think about giving the former slaves the vote but not women but similarly how do you rationalize not giving citizenship to anybody everybody else but the native population of the land in which you're occupying insane it's so crazy and it's like these were the radicals of their time it's like we'll do the right thing and give the freed slaves the right to citizenship and it's like what about all of the people who were here before you it's like oh that's an afterthought no of course not like why would we even do that it's fucking there was not a single person as far as i can tell who was advocating for that yeah i think i think it's because um they're radicalism stems from a very particular type of ideology and in some ways a lot of the radicals and the people on the left of the republican party when there are these debates about whether to give the former now emancipated and freed slaves the right to vote or not there is a lot of difficulty even amongst radical circles to decide whether that's what they want or not they certainly want to give um a portion of equal rights to slaves, right? Um, they want to make them free and equal citizens because they want them to be able to participate in this sort of like new burgeoning um, free labor economy. And they think that this is what's necessary to make that happen. But I don't know, but they then don't really extend that necessity to actually giving the right to vote. And that, that's what I mean by them having a very particular ideological outlook. They want to achieve a particular outcome. They have a particular concept of freedom, but also they have a particular concept of economic freedom, which underlies all of this. Um, they have a particular concept of republicanism. Um, and I think it's that. It's not, it, they're, they're, they're not motivated by a sort of like general humanism that you might then extend to Native Americans being allowed to survive survive you know (laughs) like it actually having to honor the agreements that you make with them and this kind of thing um they do want everybody they do have an idea of what the right society it's like because they are sort of like 
enlightenment types they're not quite liberals yet but as the liberal a liberal formation will come into existence later on in this narrative but like they do have a very particular type of enlightenment ideology they have an idea of civilization and they have a very clear idea i think of what probably what falls outside of that and what they're going to give no concern to and in this case it's the native americans first nations population yeah and it's just insane too because it's like we'll get on to the 15th amendment here in a bit but it's like Man, if they were to, if the Republicans were to really follow through and give the freed slaves real citizenship and actually mean it, real civil rights and actually mean it, and actually give them the right to vote, in the immediate aftermath, they never would have lost a fucking election anywhere, right? Where there was like a, even something close to a majority black population. It's just like, but that's again, that just speaks to this dynamic between like, you know, them wanting to end slavery, but also maintain a disciplined labor force and also win the elections. It's like you kind of, you kind of can't really have all three because sooner or later they're going to, you know, the slaves are going to kind of figure out what you were up to. But anyway, the last of the reconstruction amendments was the 15th. And that was the one that ostensibly granted the right to vote for, for everybody. But again, he spends an, a time talking about this, this, I, okay. I'm going to read another little bit. I apologize to the listener, but this is really important to get across because he makes the point that this wasn't done for the reasons that we think it's done. He says that to, to kind of give some context to this, like most quote unquote radical uh, uh, bills that pass through the United States, it gets watered down to the point of basically meaning nothing. And the original amendment was going to be this really big sweeping thing where it's like, you can vote regardless of, um, I think, I think the original wording was race. Yeah, yeah, He says here, race, color, nativity, property, education, or religious beliefs. And then it was eventually basically just gotten down to race to basically just mean the freed slaves. And the reason for this is, as he says, um, the 15th Amendment was more remarkable for what it did not than for what it did contain. The failure to guarantee Blacks' right to hold office arose from fear that such a provision would jeopardize the prospects of ratification in the North. Uh, equally important, Northern states wished to retain their own suffrage qualifications. In the West, the Chinese couldn't vote, and the 15th Amendment altered this situation uh, Noted California Republican Senator Cornelius Cole said that it would kill our party dead as stone. Pennsylvania demanded citizens to own $134 worth of real estate. Massachusetts and Connecticut insisted on literacy. Thus, the northern states during Reconstruction actually abridged the right to vote more extensively than the southern states. Ironically, it was not a limp to... It was not a limited commitment to blacks' rights, but the desire to retain inequalities affecting whites... That produced a 15th Amendment that opened the door to poll taxes, literacy tests, and property qualifications, obviously, especially in the South. That just, that just, that, oh my God, when I read that, that just fucking pissed me off <laughs> so much. It's like, here we have this ostensibly progressive political party watering down their own amendments so that they can keep, you know, people in like Rhode Island from voting. It's just insane. It's so insane. And, and just obviously... You know, this is something that, you know, is fairly, uh, fairly obvious. The treatment of the Chinese building the railroads, the Chinese immigrant population in specifically California was just so brutal. And obviously would have the Chinese exclusion acts and all sorts of stuff like this. But like, again, this was just another population of the United States that the ruling class realized if they actually followed through on giving them rights, it would mean, oh, fuck, nobody would actually vote for us anymore. So we can't do that. Just maddening. Yeah, we want to give um, uh, black southern fleed slaves the right to vote because they might advantage us, but we don't want to give poor white people the right to vote in <laughs> Maine or wherever. Because, yeah, exactly. Like, but it does it does underlie the re recognition that like uh, these are tactical choices 
and also it underlies a recognition of like developing class relationships in the in the this whole process and how like politics is an adjunct of uh maintaining class relationships um and which of which of these amendments this is another brief aside really is i think um susan b anthony gets quite upset because one of these amendments is the first one that introduces the the word men or man into the constitution oh, yeah. i'm like, not sure it, it guarantees black men the right to vote yeah. um, which is one of the, i think it's one of the first sort of like um nails in the coffin of this alliance that you were talking about before um as those two interests begin to diverge kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah and this just kind of shows obviously the slow watering down of reconstruction the slow uh, abandonment of it and then just the slow dissolution of the quote-unquote radical republican caucus into just completely other things um i guess we should talk a little bit about the end of reconstruction and about the election of rutherford b hayes which is particularly maddening mm-hmm. um uh, one of, the, one of the things i'd like to touch on just before that is another um one of the ways in which uh the racism of the northern white republicans really sort of revealed itself but also um it sort of like reveals a degree of ignorance on their part is that one of the reasons that they were quite apprehensive about giving the right to vote and all of these extended freedoms to the freed slaves what they they didn't think they were capable of using them um and one of the things that was revealed quite clearly by this history is that no they could clearly participate in in politics and they form they joined the republican party on mass and they also um began all these sort of education societies and open schools and um began to go to university and these kind of things there was this massive engagement with all of these new liberties that's probably the most one of the most important legacies of um of reconstruction that was totally unexpected i think by uh northern whites but it was so fundamental to this sort of like the late 1860s period i suppose um and I guess one of the aspects which should have led to a lot of the the aspects of the um, reaction to that, particularly the reaction of um, whites and the degree of violence that um, was enacted on uh, the freed slaves, the formation of the Ku Klux Klan and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, there was a huge amount going on. There was, We've already alluded to the fact that there's a very complicated history and there are so many different things. Oh, it's worth saying right now, as we go into the sort of latter phase of Reconstruction, there are a huge number of things that lead to the undermining of reconstruction um one of them is the uh the violence enacted by the ku klux klan and other organizations like it sort of avowedly white supremacist ones ones that would be um crushed by very decisive action by the federal government um and one of the ways in which the federal government made it clear through Reconstruction that they were willing to intervene in the South in a lot of ways. Maybe they weren't willing to like get rid of the quote-unquote traitors, you know. Maybe they weren't going to lead to an all-out class war against the planter class, but they were going to um, def- at, at least attempt to defend in some respects um, the rights of um, freed slaves to exercise these new rights that they've been given. But yeah, one of the things, anyway, yeah. Well, yeah, fuck, I completely forgot. We haven't even talked about the Ku Klux Klan. God damn it. <laughs> For an hour and we haven't even talked about the KKK. What a, what a particularly horrifying uh, series of events that mm-hmm. took place. I mean, yeah. the, I the, the, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. 
I remember growing up in school when we were learning about the Civil War in one of my textbooks when I was a kid, there was an etching that's in this book that really fucked me up for a long time. And it's it's this, it's a dramatization of the Ku Klux Klan. And what it is, is it's like a nice black family cooking food in their home. And there are these two hooded guys with guns like peeking into the house. And it's this really horrifying image. Um, and he uses it in this book. And I was like kind of triggered again. I was like, oh fuck, this freaked me out when I was a kid. It's freaking me out now. But um, just a really singularly horrifying uh, series of events in United States history. And, you know, obviously you, you touched on it a bit there. The KKK uh, operated to um, using violence, basically, not just against freed slaves and their families, but also against Republicans who came in to kind of administer things, you know, like bureaucrats. They would go around murdering them. They would go around murdering slaves, ex-slaves, I should say. And one of, one of the things that that really made me think about was like, you kind of hear this refrain a lot when there's violence perpetuated against a majority population in some areas um, by a minority group, uh, a, a like radical terrorist group like the KKK. You kind of hear a lot like, well, why didn't they just fight back? They had more uh, more numbers. They could have easily just kicked their ass. To say nothing of like the fact that most farmers had guns, but they were like shotguns he mentions here, whereas the KKK was being given like fucking rifles and shit by the old plantation owners or just were the plantation owner class. But I mean, he he, uh, he uses some primary sources here of freed slaves to kind of explain why that could never really have happened. And in some cases, obviously it did. You had people protecting themselves and their families and kicking the KKK out before the federal government got its act together and really was like, okay, we need to stop this. But in reality, what would have happened is say, and I think this did happen. I think he gives an example of like an Irish immigrant and a black family who kind of tried to take things into their own hands and go and oust some of these KKK pricks from their um, communities is they did but then the broader white population would just buy into the propaganda and be like, see, look at these violent people, these violent savages. Okay, I understand why the KKK was doing what, doing what they did and would just lead to a huge backlash. Um, and so it's just this complete no-win situation for the slaves being terrorized by the KKK, um, where if they tried to do something, they would lose. And if they didn't, they would just be cowed into being sharecroppers who were forced to give up everything that they had, just like they had before the Civil War and before emancipation. So really just a brutal situation and took really several years for the federal government to come in and actually, quote unquote, set things right. But like even after that, like the KKK's peak was in the 1920s. They had like almost 4 million members in the 20s. And that's when lynchings were at the highest and all, you know. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's very brutal. And obviously it's still around. So, you know, not great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in some ways like, he implies that there's they sort of like materially weren't in a similar position to fight back, as you say, from like being under resourced and not having the right weapons and that kind of thing. And also just lacked the same degree of social power, right? He talks about the makeup of the Ku Klux Klan and the people doing the direct violence may have been like the poor whites kind of thing, but there were so many people in the Ku Klux Klan that were also sheriffs or politicians or ministers or teachers or that kind of thing. It was he he points out there is a false analysis or it's, in history. In former historical analysis of the Ku Klux Klan, there's been a, a sort of false um, image drawn of them being as just being ignorant whites kind of thing. But um, really, it was an organization that sort of like um, existed in all stratas of uh, Southern white society. Um, 
And there's a sort of a side to that, which I, I'm not sure how well it connects, but um, he does also discuss the degree to which um, the Democrats in the South were willing to suppress people's ability to exercise their rights, primarily through, partly through violence, I suppose, but also through various different efforts at like voter disenfranchisement, putting in, um, putting in place qualifications for voting, um, and he sort of says that the the Northern Republicans were so committed to a sort of like democratic ideology that they weren't willing to go to the same degree of voter suppression. And maybe it wouldn't have been through direct violence, but it certainly would have been um, disenfranchising, as we said before, the planter class that they were unwilling to disenfranchise and that kind of thing. So it just seems to be this sort of like stark dichotomy between the Northern Republicans who, were, who weren't willing to um, engage in any type, form or other of... Uh, voter disenfranchisement or prevention of participation in democracy but the democrats in the south were willing to do that um and it was interesting for me how it seems to be a legacy that's gone on for continues to this day like you you think of sort of voter suppression either as being something that existed in the run-up to the civil rights movement in the 60s or it exists to a degree today um but it's all the same tactics that have been used for the past hundred. What are we at now? Seventy years um, to prevent the, in some parts of the South anyway, the, um, the, the, the black population, the majority black population in some places, from having a degree of influence on politics that they would have done if they were just allowed to participate freely. Um, so it's interesting to draw that legacy all the way through this, I guess. Do you need an ID to vote out here? You do, don't you? you do, no, you don't. Okay. But but there have been moves recently to try and implement a law like that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, great. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I don't know how far that's come along, actually. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe it has passed and maybe it will be in place by the next general election that you need to have a form of ID. No. Um, yeah. Mm. There's just been, it's just a, a similar Ferrari has been kicked up over the possibility of voter fraud, even though there's absolutely no evidence of any form of voter fraud ever taking place. Um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine it would probably be quite shocking to some people in some countries how easy, like you don't even have to take a polling card to the booth here. You just go and say your name and where you live, and then they give you your <laughs> ballot and physically cross your name off a list. I'm going to um, force you to vote for the Lib Dems. <laughs> Imagine, imagine, you can this go is in like, and say, say your the, name is me. <laughs> yeah, it's me. <laughs> is this like what Tories think? They're like, people are committing voter fraud to get Keir Starmer elected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's also in a lot of rhetoric quite racialized. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, all right. So, Rutherford B. Hayes, should we talk about him? This yeah. this guy, I believe he's uh, called in this book a a, a no name political nobody. <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah, the Republicans just wanted some schmuck that they could run, much like we more or less have a Warhammer forty thousand situation in the United States of just a, the corpse like uh, uh, existence of Joe Biden as just being a guy that they put up there and who beat Trump, right? They kind of just wanted somebody like that. They wanted a Rutherford B. Hayes. I think he was the governor of Ohio or something like that. Anyway, the election becomes really closely contested. Um, and there are 20 electoral, I think there are like, I think it's something like 20. There's something like 20 electoral uh, college votes up for grabs. And there's some, after some shady backroom dealings, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes is elected and uh, 
surprise, surprise, just, you know, by pure coincidence, Reconstruction's ended and all the federal troops are taken out of the South. Um, and it seems like, I don't know what sense you got, but it seems like that was a better deal for the Democrats because who knows what Tilden would have been able to do if he was actually president, the Democrat who ran. But it seems like, you know, at this point, the Radical Republican Caucus or whatever had really uh, disbanded. It was no longer really a... Um, uh, a title that anybody held to. Republican politicians had really lost interest in in all of this sort of thing. There were the draft riots in New York City, which was one of the most violent goddamn riots in United States history, if not the most violent, which saw a lot of racial animosity in the North, in New York City, obviously. Um, and so it seemed like Reconstruction was just going away. The last thing I'll say on it is that Fonda really makes the point where he was like, you can't just be like, this was Rutherford B. Hayes' fault for ending Reconstruction. Because in American schools, that's, you know, you learn like a couple of facts about each president and then you move on. The one that you learn about Rutherford B. Hayes is that he had like a big beard and that he ended Reconstruction. And, like, that's it. But he is like, this wasn't the, uh, this didn't cause the end of Reconstruction. This was the culmination of the end of Reconstruction and just its period, basically. Yeah, I mean, the structure of this book is very much formulated into different chapters on different periods, both chronological periods of this history, but also um, concise topics. Um, but there is a sense, basically, at every point in this book, there are things hinted at that are undermining Reconstruction in various ways um, all the way through this period. I say that just to emphasize what you say there. It's, it's not Hayes' fault. It's not like Reconstruction is going really well and then they... they um, they pull the plug on it. One of the things that's most important, I think, one of the things I found most interesting anyway is um, just the degree of um, shifting class relations and then similarly the shifting relationships in a political ideology um, that were happening in the Democrats and the Republicans through this period. Um, and it sort of speaks to um, how northern republicans felt about reconstruction in the first place and i think it does emphasize the ways in which it wasn't sort of like um uh, a humanist project but it was a very pragmatic ideological one um and there was sort of this general um coalescence of views that the the i think what what the picture that i got anyway was there was this sort of train changing viewpoint among a lot of the elite in the north that Although what they'd been intended to do was implement um, the sort of free labor ideology or based on the free labor ideology, they wanted to implement a sort of free labor system into the South. Um, what that had achieved was not a sort of flourishing of a, a free market capitalism that was their ideology, but rather what it had achieved was this kind of like degree of government bloat, this amount of necessity to tax and to spend this necessity to intervene in the south so thoroughly um so they just i think they just seem to be the, the the image that i got anyway was there was this just general weariness with the whole project um and the, and then this sense that actually their commitment to it was sort of tenuous and only partial um and so just it, it, it led to this realignment. The radical faction, as you say, kind of disappeared. Some of the modern Republicans went over to supporting the Democrats. A lot of them started to shift to be to adopting a more classically liberal ideology, which wanted to see um, less taxation and all the things you sort of think of as being capitalist ideology 101, I guess. Um, and so just the desires of the political class had moved on. 
um, in the wake of the economic crisis of the early 1870s. Um, there were other concerns. Uh, but as you say, it just seemed like a bit of a stitch up where in the end, what happened was Hayes comes in and adopts this policy of self-rule, I think is what he describes it. So it's not as if like there'd been, there had been an erosion of some of the things implemented by Reconstruction, but it wasn't so much a, um, a f- putting a firm end to it so much as withdrawing federal intervention in the South and sort of then the South gradually over a sort of 20 year period, I suppose, um, slipped back into um, or started to implement things that they'd wanted to implement all the way through means to discipline um, the black workforce, but the entire workforce and also started to implement um, voter suppression again. Um, so it was more, it felt to me more like a fizzling out than a sort of like hard end. Is that is that a fair portrayal, do you think? I think so. And especially he talks about this rise of what he calls the new liberal ideology, right? Mm. And this comes purely out of the burgeoning industrial capitalist class in the North as not necessarily having their interests in the agrarian expansion of the South. And cotton for a long time had been uh, falling in price and falling in demand on the world market. And so increasingly the loudest voices in the Republican Party were representing um, their real constituents who were the burgeoning capitalist class of the North, right? And I think a lot of these people saw their main goal, this was like reformers, right? Um, they saw the main goal as uh, civil service reform in the North, right? Which is like fair. Like you had people like Boss Tweed in the North and just this pure patronage system. The reformers really wanted ostensibly a meritocracy, right? They wanted an end to protective tariffs. Um, and I think that they really felt that the old radical Republicans uh, were constantly, as they called it, waving the bloody shirt of the Civil War. Uh, by being like, don't you remember how many people died in the Civil War? Don't you remember how horrible this all was? Don't you remember how bad the South was? And this political class of reformers, this burgeoning liberal group, was just getting weary of it. And um, increasingly, and also this was really fascinating, we start to see the seeds of a real industrial labor movement, and that takes the capitalist class's interest. They go, whoa, this is way more important, putting putting out these fires than... Um, you know, doing civil rights in the South and allowing this class to not just fall back into sharecropping and slavery and all but name. Um, there was a massive strike in 1877 that coincided with the election and trying to sort out the election in which uh, the monumental decision to that Rutherford B. Hayes eventually made to send in the army to quell the strikes, which basically stopped railroads, railroad buildings were burned down, um, tracks were dug up, this type of thing. Um, this really led to a growing faction in the Republican Party being like, we really need to focus on beating down this new industrial proletariat because this is where our real economic interests are and and not so much, quote unquote, like waving the bloody flag of the South. So that doesn't show you what politics is. You know, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and, it's, and it's pointed out in this book, it's, it's a recognized hypocrisy at the time that for Hayes to be inaugurated in late in the, in sometime in the March of um, 1887, uh, 1877 withdraw federal troops from the south and lead to this sort of like home rule in the south or whatever they call it because it's not the federal government's job to be the country's policeman and then a few months later there's this massive strike and what does he do he uses federal <laughs> troops to break up. god damn it <laughs> um turns out maybe it is the federal government's job to intervene in certain places where it's necessary where um, their bread is buttered yeah exactly which just just enforces what you were just saying that they decided their priorities had changed. Yeah. 
Yeah, grim story, and that's mm. the end of Reconstruction. <laughs> and it, and it, you know, once the the lesson is is that once the federal government leaves, and the freed slaves and the black Americans in the South, no, they still don't have proper universal suffrage. They still don't have proper citizenship. They still don't have proper civil rights. They're the black codes. We'll go into the Jim Crow era eventually, right? Like once the federal government leaves, it's just, you know, new boss, same as the old boss, because they can't help themselves because they no longer have a stake in, in, uh, in political rule and they're just being ruled over again. And so, you know, basically we wanted to read this book to kind of try and answer the question of what does it mean when different socialist groups say we need to finish reconstruction? And I think a whole lot of, you know, more history needs to be read to understand what happened between 1877 and, you know, 2023. But um, universal suffrage is still not a thing. And the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, except for the ones that are in prisons, right? And still to this day, you can still do slavery as long as they're in prison, right? And so real universal suffrage, real universal citizenship, a real stake in, uh, you know, one person, one vote. These might be things that point towards, I think, finishing Reconstruction. He does, he does, yeah, definitely, yeah. He does sort of like, I'm just trying to draw on what he thinks of the legacy of Reconstruction is. Um, and he, he points, I don't know how, he points on a few um, uh factors that came out of it he talks about the strengthening of the black family i'm not quite sure um what he means by that necessarily but also this legacy of both um the significance of the church and the significance of um education as being three legacies which kind of persist and really do actually feed into the civil rights movement nearly 100 years later of being these sort of like legacies that survive but then he also finishes the book with this discussion of how that history was passed on because general historical um analysis of the period often saw it as a uh, as a failure and as something that should never have been attempted and he talks about how it was only in the sort of like the if in the memory of the emancipated slaves that lived through that period that they sort of like the true history of that period the significance of that period what was attempted um lived on kind of thing um and he sort of ends with this idea that it was significant what the question is almost like not why did it fail but it was incredibly significant that it was ever attempted in the first place like why was it attempted then and what circumstances more optimistic the end than i thought it was going to be mm-hmm because I thought he was going to come down and be like, see, this fucking sucked and it failed. But he's more, he's kind of also just like, yes, we're still feeling the reconstruction of this abject failure uh, in many ways today. Um, but also it's remarkable that it even happened at all, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a couple little things we didn't touch on that kind of blew my mind. One was he gives the number of blacks serving in the Union Army. And I had always just kind of assumed, okay, it was probably just like a couple of people that made their way north or, you know, the minority population that lived in the north. But he puts the number at 180,000 people, which is insane um, and does go to show that, yes, Lincoln had an interest in the Emancipation Proclamation also because he wanted to win the war and he knew that a lot of people more would fight for it. And also we didn't touch on the union leagues, which were like these kind of. Uh, um, extra governmental, extra state structures that formed sometimes in secret, sometimes in not, um, sometimes just with radical Republicans in the South, sometimes, and I would say most of the time with freed slaves, these um, 
groups that were kind of like half mutual aid, half political groups um, to kind of organize uh, black life and Republican life in the post-war South. He tells a really cool anecdote about how at all of these meetings they would have, I think like a flag and a Bible, which like whatever on the table, who cares, but that they would also have some kind of instrument of labor on the table. And oftentimes it was like an anvil or, you know, a carpenter's tools or something like that to really be like, here are the things that we're here for. And I thought that was fucking cool. I was like, damn, okay, this was the most radical class. This is very, very cool. Um, is there anything else? Anything else we need to talk about? Um, I yeah, no, I think other than to um other than to emphasize how um fully these rights were taken up, how much um enthusiasm there was for them, how much participation there was in all of these different organizations, as you say. Um yeah, other than that, I think um Sort of, yeah, I think there's a, what I would say is there's a huge amount in this book, far more than we could cover in this discussion. Um, and it's definitely worth reading um, because it's, yeah, just a very sort of very consumable, but very um, comprehensive uh, history. And you can't sort of quite grasp it without going through the full narrative because there's so many interlocking elements, which almost sort of... It, Seems like the the picture that I'm taking away is that it was such a, a such a rupture happened not just in like uh, American politics but sort of, sort of also American economics at the time um, that allowed for this peculiar flourishing before everything settled back into um, almost the way it had been before kind of thing. But it's interesting what can be opened and and in some ways this is why he refers it as to a rev, as to a, refers to it as a revolutionary rom- moment right. So many things were thrown into question. So many new options were put in the air. There was so much possibility that that it almost looks like looks from him looking back. It almost seems like an impossibility. You know, why did it happen at all? And it was because it was um, almost a revolutionary moment um, that failed. It was a failed revolution. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, we we didn't. Another thing we didn't even touch on was the idea of chain gang labor, which was just an immediate return to slavery in which the state governments in the South would just loan out um, chain gangs, loan out labor to different capitalists or to the state itself. And this, you know, we saw all sorts of, we'd see all sorts of laws in the South being put into place where it's like, you stole a pig 5,000 years in prison for that, right? Just these over the top laws where if you did anything wrong and you were black, you'd be put into the chain gangs. And that obviously would last well into the 20th century. And well, I mean, we don't have literal chain gangs now, but we still do have a lot of prison labor. And so mm-hmm. that still lasts. Um, one thing, I'm going to read one more thing, Dan, unfortunately. And this one's from Black Reconstruction in America. I poked through the last chapter of Du Bois, Du Bois, I never know how to say it. His his book, his, you know, the tome, the one that you should read. And I found these two paragraphs. And um, I think there's something we should think about if we're trying to do historical materialism. So he says, if one reads, for instance, Charles and Mary Beard's Rise of American Civilization with a comfortable feeling that nothing of right or wrong could ever be involved. And he's talking about history here. Manufacturing and industry develop in the North. Agrarian feudalism develops in the South. They clash as winds and waters strive and the stronger forces develop the tremendous, the industrial machine that governs us so magnificently and selfishly today. Yet this Yet in this sweeping mechanistic interpretation, there's no room for the real plot of the story. 
for the clear mistake and guilt of rebuilding a new slavery of the working class in the midst of a fateful experiment in democracy, for the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade, and for the hurt and struggle of the degraded black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempt to enter democracy. Can all of this be omitted or half suppressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific? I think, yeah, oof, heavy yeah. words, very, very yeah. heavy words. And I think a very stark reminder of, yeah, not just the human cost of history, but also he's really clearly making a point here. He's like, if you want to be scientific about history, if you want to do dialectical materialism or whatever, you goddamn nerds, you really have to understand the concrete. Because if you don't, you're not going to understand the true nature of these monumental historic events. And it's just going to lead you to do what he says here, where, you know, you have the interpretation that it was capitalists versus the old feudal aristocracy in the South. And that's just clearly not what it was. And it takes away from the individual action of millions of people um, going throughout their daily lives and uh, particularly brutal. And unfortunately this episode doesn't really have a happy ending because this is still where we're at today. So um, I would echo your call. I think that people should read this book. Um, this is his short history of reconstruction. We did not read his actual history of reconstruction. It, it kind of got me to think, remember in the communal when he was like, if you actually want to understand historical periods, you have to kind of do capital, but for the period of your choice. I think that um, one of these days, maybe we get around to reading Black Reconstruction in America or Fauner's like, you know, bigger book on the subject, because um, I think if there's a situation or a period of history in American, uh, period of American history that could uh, necessitate that level of analysis, it's definitely reconstruction. And did not happen that long ago, too. Something we haven't mentioned. So, yeah, not great. But good stuff. Good stuff to read. It's I, I, Weirdly enough, even though the phrase dialectical materialism or historical materialism hasn't been mentioned at all in this book, it's definitely a work that uh, is very materialist and um, has taught me quite a bit about, you know, how you do history or whatever. He does talk about the dialectic of continuity and change at one point. That's true. <laughs> which we like around which, here which we like we definitely like <laughs> yeah, yeah all right yeah. um well yeah everybody read this book uh it's some good stuff it's history that we read that isn't about the origin of capitalism so you know it's worth reading because you know that's usually what we do around here so um we'll be back again with something very good this has been a very long episode but i think it was worth it hopefully you stuck around and uh yeah we'll see you some other time thank you dan uh, thank you, Jack. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. I'm really glad we finally uh, got around to talking this book uh, because uh, the period of history I didn't know anything about and I'm very glad we've now gone through it at least partially. It gives me a lot to think about. And um, I hope people listening have enjoyed it too. Thank you, everyone. See ya. music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people to by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time Whoa.